Well, this is Alex Grant. Today's episode is brought to you by my new comic, Journey into Mexico, with Latin American artist Sebastián Guidobono, following the adventures of young T-Hax Tabares, who wields the power of... El Fuego! During a very politically hot time in 1830s Mexico. Available in both English and Spanish on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Comixology, and other book outlets such as IndiePlanet.com. Cheers, and let's get started. Welcome again to the Comic Book Historians Podcast. I'm Alex Grant with my co-host Jim Thompson. Today we're honored to have Mr. Tom DeFalco, former editor and writer over at Marvel Comics, also currently editing and writing many projects, including work done at Archie Comics. Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Okay, so Tom, what we usually like to do is to start at the very beginning where you were born, a little bit of background on your, your family, your parents, and then into what you, how you started being interested in comics as a kid. So you were born in Queens? I was born in Queens um, okay. many years ago, <laughs> way too many years ago. I am the oldest of uh, seven children. My father was a butcher who eventually owned a small supermarket and um, pretty much you know, grew up working in the supermarket mm-hmm. and uh, understanding how you, know, you, you make little bits of profit add up to uh, you know, a paycheck at the end of the week. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. had a, biz- a sense of, as a small business owner, as your father, you had a, a sense of business practicality and, and common sense. Is that, would that be fair to say? I, I'd, I'd say that was hammered into me. Yeah. You know, the little things where, you know, people would bring in, you know, 10 cents off coupon. And I realized that, you know, at that time, if you were a store owner and they brought in the 10 cents coupon, you would make an additional two cents by mailing it into the company. Yeah. And I realized at the end of the month, all these little coupons added up. It actually served me well when I first started working for Archie Comics, because I forget if it was John Goldwater or Louis Silverclamp. One of them said to me, this is a business of pennies. Yeah. But if you, if you watch the pennies, eventually they turn into dollars. Wow. Oh, that's really interesting. So let's talk about uh, comics a little bit. When, when did you start? Did you, were you a comic reader as a kid? I started reading newspaper strips, mm-hmm. The Phantom, Mandrake the Magician, Pogo Possum, on stage by Leonard Starr, and, and very occasionally Prince Valiant, mm. because my father didn't, didn't pick up that paper. You know, mm-hmm. Dick Tracy, you know, all, all of the, the basic comic strips. Mm. I got into comic strips very early, and I used to cut them out of the, the newspaper. You know, I was hoping my timing was right, and I would cut them out of the paper after my father read them, not before. <laughs> and uh, somewhere along the line, I think it was at some family party, and one of my cousins, uh, my cousin Johnny, who was, he was uh, you know, a few years older than me, handed me a Batman comic. It was either a Batman comic or a detective comic. Yeah. And it just, I remember looking at this creature Batman, and it scared the heck out of me. Mm-hmm. But I really liked this thing called comic books. Mm-hmm. And um, I started searching around and discovered that they were on sale pretty well everywhere. Mm. And, you know, from then on, I was kind of hooked. What year do you think was that when you started reading the comic books? Oh, um, 
I'm going to guess 1956, 57, somewhere around there. So kind of like that Jack Schiff era of of Batman kind of. And then, uh, and then, so this was before the Marvel, the Marvel stuff was coming out. Okay. Sure. Sure. Uh (laughs) Were you reading any EC stuff or just mainly more kid superhero things? It was the kids comic books, the Harvey comics, the, um, you know, the DC superhero things. Yeah, uh, the the occasional Marvel monster book, plenty of westerns. I love mm-hmm. uh, you know I love westerns. Yeah, I I've read elsewhere where uh, Walt Kelly was actually a, a pretty big influence, or at least one of the the ones that really really grabbed you early on. Is that right? Oh, that's yeah. Like I mentioned earlier, Pogo Possum. Pogo Possum, yeah, was a uh, that that was his strip, and Kelly's his artwork, his his way of dealing with characters, it just just really hooked me. Mm-hmm. One of my trips to the library, I saw this uh, book. I think it was called "Just Fine," says Bug, which was a collection of of uh, pogo strips. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I must have taken that book out a hundred times from the library, just studying it and just enjoying it. Oh, that's great! So, do you feel that so, Pogo, it, it, uh, Walt Kelly's Pogo, had better characterization more uh, than, let's say, the DC Batman stuff? Or did you feel that you liked the DC Batman characterization as well? Well, like I said, Batman scared me. Right. I stuck more with the Superman line of, line of comic oh, books. Oh, I see. You know, okay. I, I love Jimmy Olsen because um, Jimmy Olsen kind of reminded me of me. There were five or six page stories. And for the first four or five pages, he'd, he'd just screw up, screw up, screw up. And then he'd hit his signal watch and Superman would come and rescue him. And I just kind of thought of Superman you know, kind of as, as a father figure and thought, hey, you know, whenever we get into trouble, Superman will rescue us. Oh, um, interesting. But in terms of the Walt Kelly stuff, you know, they, they both had different appeals to me. Right. Uh, you know, I, I love them both. And I also loved a lot of the Harvey stuff, the hot stuff, the uh, little devil and uh, spooky. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. they're all great characters. I enjoyed all that stuff. And, and of course, I read the Archie comics, too. Mm-hmm. So did you recognize Spooky as like being a fellow New Yorker? Was there like a... <laughs> I, I didn't... I don't think I was thinking in terms of New Yorkers. Because <laughs> as far as I was concerned, it was all New York. I, I didn't know there were there were other states of the Union. Right, that's that true. People were not like... Yeah, I didn't know, you know... I, I, I didn't know that there were, you know, places in this country where you can't get a decent slice of pizza. Right. Uh, when I found that out, it broke my heart. <laughs> <laughs> empathy. That shows a lot of empathy, actually. <laughs> Looking back as, a, as an editor, do you feel that Mort Weisinger was a good editor of those Superman comics you were reading as a kid? This is a question no one has ever asked me, and I've never really analyzed it. I think Mort produced the kind of material that was needed at the time, because at that time, comic books, I think, were aimed for, you know, six to 10 year olds. And that material was perfect for, you know, when you're six, seven, eight year, years old. You know, certainly the Jimmy Olsen stuff where he turned into a giant turtle or, a, you know, a werewolf or, or what have you. You know, it was really fun nonsense. Mm, I got you. One little step above the, the uh, Harvey stuff. But I, um, you know, I, I look at that, that stuff today with a lot of fondness. Yeah. Now, I know Mort was a rough editor. I've heard the stories from people who worked with him, but he, you know, the material that he, that he was producing, it really had an effect on people. You see his influence today from so many writers who were you know, trying to make sense of of these characters and 
you know, Mr. Multiplex or whatever you call them, trying to figure out ways of getting that into continuity. And, and you know, for me, I, <laughs> if I were them, I'd just forget that stuff. Yeah. I create new stuff. Right. All right. So did you, when you were thinking about you, talk about your education a little bit. Where did you go to school? Well, I um, I went to uh, high school or college or you know. well, let, let's well let's start with let's go to straight to college. The college I went to a small college called Le Moyne College. Somewhere early on in my life, I discovered that I that I wanted to be a writer when I grew up. I um, wasn't convinced that you could actually make a living as a writer. So my plan going to college was I was going to become a teacher and um, write on the weekends. It kind of ironic because I became a writer who had to work every goddamn weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up having an elective in my freshman year, which you're not supposed to have. And I, I figured, you know, I might as well take an education course. And I ended up taking this course called Philosophy of Education. And I was a freshman. I was in a room full of seniors who had gone through all four years of the education course. And it was my first philosophy course. So I go into this course and they're discussing the philosophy of education and they would ask questions and no one really knew the answers. They were just discussing things. Now, I didn't because I had never taken a philosophy course before. I didn't realize this is how philosophy works. You ask the questions and then you discuss them. There aren't no actual answers. But I was sitting there as a freshman thinking, man, these guys went through four years of the education course. They don't know what education is. This must be a lousy course. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. I immediately dropped out of the education department, thought, I, I, better, I better start writing because <laughs> I don't have any other plan. Yeah, survival. Yeah, so I, uh, a very lucky guy, I did some short stories and um, very lucky I actually managed to sell them. And uh, there was a local newspaper and I started working for the local newspaper, doing reviews and writing whatever the heck they assigned me to do. At some point, uh, the, I, I applied to work in the college public relations department and writing press releases and that sort of thing. So I, I was building up a portfolio. I had, also, you worked, had you worked in high school for your like high school paper or anything, or was it oh, your yeah. first published work? Oh, no, no. I, in, in high school, I worked for the, uh, the school newspaper, the school literary magazine, you know, all of that stuff. I keep trying to figure out now, what was my first, you know, professional work. It was either 1969 or 1970. I think it was 69 was when I first sold my first couple of short stories. And I just kept writing. In college, I teamed up with an artist and we actually did a weekly comic strip for the school newspaper. What was it about? Oh, it was called The Crimson Crackpot. And I look at it now and it was really terrible. <laughs> it was really terrible. We thought it was very funny at the time, but oh man. We just made fun of, you know, people on the college and, you know, the things that were happening on the campus at that time. Now, what kind of short stories were you, were you writing like genre fiction? Were they, you know, horror, science fiction, or, or was it? They were mainly, I, I guess, mainly fantasy kind of stories. I learned early on that I didn't have the technical expertise to do science fiction. I uh, was once working on a science fiction story and I had to work out a math problem. And it took me four or five hours to work out the, the math so that I knew the science actually worked. <laughs> and that became one sentence in the story. So <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> so I thought later on, yes, science fiction, not for me. 
So it was, it was that, and, and then later on, I eventually graduated to mystery stories and things like that. And were, were comics at all in your mind that that might be a direction you would go in, in terms of like comic book, comic book writing? I didn't really think of, you know, aiming for comic book writing when I was in college and stuff. I was thinking more about trying to be the next Edgar Rice Burroughs. When I was a kid... I discovered the Marvel comics when I was about 10 or 11 years old. Fantastic Four, three and four. I bought them both up together and I became a Marvel fan from that day on. Oh, cool. There were two really, really good writers when I was growing up. It was Bob Canninger and, yeah. uh, and Stan Lee. Yeah. And I uh-huh. figured if you weren't Bob or, or Stan, there was no future for you. Right. By the time I got into college... Roy had come on the scene, Denny O'Neill had come, so many other guys had come on the scene, so I saw it as a possibility, but I I didn't really think too much about comics, you know, until I graduated, and when I graduated, I, I started, you know, looking for a job, right? because I was programmed, you had to have a job, you had to have a paycheck, you had, and I wrote, uh, I, I sent out resumes to all the companies, including Archie, uh-huh. and I heard back from Archie, right? They uh, invited me up and uh, gave me an interview. I met uh, Victor Gorlick, who, uh, you know, taught me everything I know, but not everything he knows. And I'm still, you know, hawking him for that stuff. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and I started at Archie. And, and what, you met, what and you year met was just, this? Oh, yeah. Go uh, what year? What, yeah. Uh, 1972. So, and you met John Goldwater, you, you mentioned earlier? I eventually met John Goldwater. Uh, there was, uh, at that time... There was John Goldwater, who was the president of the company, Louis Silberkleit, who I think it was co-president. I'm not exactly sure what their right. titles were. Right, right. Richard Goldwater was the editor. Uh-huh. And um, Michael Silberkleit, the son of uh, Louis, was the guy in charge of the business aspects of it. Oh, cool. So I think so- Michael had seen my resume and thought, hey, let's let's give this idiot a chance. How were, how were those guys interpersonally? I think a lot of people are curious about that because I think they see the names, but they don't know how they were on a personal level. Well, you know, it was a small family company and um, they were used to doing things as a small family company, you know, running it like that. But, you know, between John Goldwater and Louis Silberkite, these guys kind of created the comic book industry mm-hmm. and forgot more about comics than most people, you know, ever learned. I was, uh, I, you know, I... Anytime a Goldwater would come into the room, I, I would open my ears to, to see whatever I, I, I could learn and, mm. and try to ask him a bunch of questions. A lot of times mm. he would brush me off because I was asking very basic questions. But he and, and Louis and Michael and Richard, they, they all understood the business so intimately that, you know, a five-minute conversation would be like taking, you know, a six-month course anywhere else. Mm. I sometimes look back and think about all, all the greats that I got to ask questions on and work with and learn from, because you know, I, I learned from from the Silberkleits, the, the Goldwaters, Victor Gorlick, who I think he joined Archie maybe when he was about 16 years old, and he's still there, you know, well into his uh, 70s or maybe even his 80s at this stage of the game. Mm-hmm. And these guys understand comics on on a really basic, intimate level. It's, you know, the knowledge they have or had, it's just, it just takes my breath away. Wow. So when you went to work at Archie, had you, when you were a reader, were you reading Archie as a kid? 
I had read a bunch of the Archies. I enjoyed the Archie comics and especially the Jughead comic book. I noticed in when you went back to Archie after Marvel at uh, the Man from Riverdale series, you brought back one of the little Archie characters, Dr. Doom, which I was really glad because that was my favorite when I was reading Archie as a, as a small kid was, was definitely little Archie. I oh. thought those were the, the best. And they still hold up today. Those little yeah. Archie stories by Bob Bowling and later Dexter Taylor, especially the Bob Bowling stuff. I, uh, <laughs> I, ha- I have them in a box near my desk. And every once in a while, when I want, want to feel inspired, I, I pick up one of those things. You know, Bob just had a magic of weaving a story and they had such emotional content for little kid material. It was, it was, just, it was just terrific. Yeah, I still love that he- stuff. Was he gone by the time you you started in 72? Who, Bob Bowling? Yeah. No, uh, actually, Bob, when I started, I started in the editorial department working on various editorial projects, le- learning the industry from the ground up, paste-ups, you know, how to color covers, how to make uh, art corrections, how to, how to make spelling corrections, all of that stuff. And I started to write one-page gags for Archie. And eventually started to sell those. And then eventually, you know, took my shot at, at uh, doing the five-page stories. It took me a while to actually uh, crack Richard Goldwater, but I finally cracked them. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And I sold my first five-page story, and they assigned Bob Bowling to draw it. Oh, and wow. I, I couldn't believe it. I was I was in heaven. Yeah. And oh, that's they, super. Yeah, Archie had some real masters of the craft. You know, Bob Bowling, uh, Harry Lucy. Yeah, we, we used to call him Juicy Lucy because, <laughs> man, those girls were fabulous when he drew them. Oh, that's awesome. Sam Schwartz. He was who, great. His uh, jacket, especially, just so good. I I, I loved Sam. I loved his work. I love. Sometimes I didn't love working with Sam, but but I loved his work, and I'll was tell you he- why. Was he abrasive? Yeah, tell me about no, that. No, no, no. He he was a great guy, fabulous storyteller. But a lot of times he he worked late at night. You know, he put his kids to bed and would, would work through the night. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, one night about two o'clock in the morning, I get a phone call. Wakes me up out of a, out of a sound sleep, and it's Sam. He wants to discuss a joke on page two or three of a story that he's doing. <laughs> oh, okay. And I'm thinking, what is Sam? Are you kidding me, Sam? And I hung up on him. And I and I remember <laughs> and I remember thinking, what, what a, is this for real? I took the phone and I laid the phone on the floor because I thought, hey, if I wake up in the morning and the phone is where it should be. Then I know this was a dream, but if it's on the floor, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to call Sam. I'll be giving him a piece of my mind. That's funny. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so how long did you stay at Archie altogether? I was there. I'm going to say close to eight, six or eight years, somewhere in, in yeah. between. It's a good amount of time. Yeah, I I originally started full time on staff, but as I started getting more and more freelance, I cut back the staff i think at the end i was i was there i would come in one or two days you know two days a week uh, it was mainly to to work on the digest books and during the time i was at archie i started to do some work for charlton and uh charlton i got in touch with them i figured out ah, i'll just do a little extra work and they assigned me i i think they assigned me eight comic books they were all oh. bi-monthlies oh wow but, but, uh-huh. but, I, but i realized oh wow I, got, I have to write a book 
a book a week for Chum. Yeah, Plus, right. you know, watch stuff. Chum's <laughs> always famous for not paying a lot. Were they in terms of them versus Archie? Were you making around the same, or were they were they paying less? They were paying considerably less. Considerably less. At one point, I was working for. Uh, I think it, Archie was paying either twelve or or fifteen dollars a page for script, and Charles was paying five dollars a page. Right. Wow. Yeah, a lot um, less. It was a lot less, but you got to do a, you know, a lot more goofier things. Yeah, because there's less editorial oversight at Charlton, right? Yeah. 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 yeah, I always assumed that's why some people like Ditko worked for them was because they got to do what they wanted to. Yeah, I'm going to guess. I never asked. Like, all the years I spoke to Ditko, we almost never discussed comics. <laughs> oh, really? oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, tell hey. us about that. Well, that comes later on. In the That'll history. come later on. Yeah, you're right. Okay. There is a, there is a but, Ditko but, section here. You're right. Okay. There, so there, you, there you didn't there. work with Ditko on Charlton stuff? No, you, no, no. That was later with Machine Man and, and things like that. Right. Machine Man was the first time I worked with Ditko. I love how you're uh, actually you're anticipating what our script structure is today. <laughs> See, Tom is actually already editing this podcast, which I love. <laughs> I think that's great. All right. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jim. Okay, so you were. Let's go back on Archie just for a minute because you mentioned the Digest comics. Talk about that because you had a you had a major role in that, correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I stole the idea. <laughs> I, I think it was Gold Key at the time mm. had the Disney licenses, and they came right. out with a, they came out with a couple of the Digest books, and I saw them and I thought, wow, this would be perfect for our material. So. John Goldwater came in one day and I said, Mr. Goldwater, I think we should be doing these sort of books, these digest books. And he looked at me and says, what are you out of your mind? How do you market them? What do you, <coughs> when do you sell them? They're not going to fit on the comic book racks. There's nothing you can do. Get out of here. And, and he, um, you know, just told me to go back to my desk and shut up, uh, <laughs> which, which he often did. And then uh, a couple of days later, he comes back and he says, yeah, I'm thinking about those digest books. Go talk to Ben Cooperstock about them. Oh, wow. and, and Ben Cooperstock was our salesperson. Mm -hmm. So I took him to Ben and I said, uh, you know, if we did our, our books here because they they reproduce properly at this size format, do you think you could find a way to sell them? And he looked, he says, ah, oh, they're not going to fit on the comic book racks. I, yeah, there's no place to sell them. Forget about it. It's a dumb idea. And um, so I figured, okay, next time Mr. Goldwater asks me, I'll tell him. Ben said, it's a dumb idea. And then uh, a day or two later, Ben comes in and he says, you know what? I got a place where we can sell those things. They'll actually fit like the TV guide racks and stuff like that. Yeah. And he said, and he said you know, I think if we made a deal with some supermarkets, we could probably get them into the supermarkets. I'm going to look into this. And then <laughs> the next thing I know, you know, Goldwater comes in. He says, from now on, we're doing digest books. We have to get two titles out. We have to get them out. Because <laughs> uh, we're buying the real estate now. And I remember Victor turning to me and says, it was your idea. This is your problem. Deal with it. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, oh, uh, that's great. And that's so, huge. I mean, that was a huge part of Archie Comics. Oh, yeah. It, it, it became a major part of the business. And uh, and they're still a major part of the business. Actually, yeah. they, they're the part of the business that is still doing classical Archie stuff. Right. It, that's what um, I grew up on were Archie Digests, actually. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people did. They, yeah, you know, that's right. It's, it was great value for the money. 
Yeah. It was, it was trade paperbacks before there were trade paperbacks. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So then would you, where do we get from Archie to your next stop? And was that, was that DC? Yeah. Well, I was working in Charlton and then, um, I met, they used to have this thing called, uh, the Academy of comic book arts yeah. and science. Sure. Right. And, yeah. um, Neil Adams they, and Stan Lee kind of started that, right? Started that. Right. And the Archie people that would invite us to, to the annual meeting when it came time to, to pay the dues. Uh-huh. Otherwise, they forgot about us. <laughs> <laughs> so I met a couple of the guys there. I met Paul Levitz and and, and Marv Wolfman, a couple of the guys, and oh. they were having another meeting. They and they invited me to, and I, I went to that meeting. And at a certain point, uh, you know, Paul uh, was working with Joe Orlando, and they were doing some custom comics. And they asked me to if I'd like to, you know, do some extra work working on their custom comics. So I started working on custom comics for Joe Orlando. And then he was talking to me about maybe doing some um, humor stuff for DC because they always wanted to do humor stuff and things for for the younger markets. And I came up with a a few proposals. One of them was that, uh, oh, no, no, they they approached me with something called Super Juniors. It was supposed to be a 60-page book that was done tabloid sized i forget what they used to call those tabloid sized comics but it was going to be done for that like the size of their treasury editions yeah yeah the treasury editions like i said i forgot what they call them treasury editions so i worked on that and did some proposals for, for for some other humor things and then joe at one point said to me uh hey have you ever you ever thought about doing straight stuff you know the the superhero stuff and I remember saying to him, Joe, that stuff looks so hard. I, I read it. I enjoy it. But I don't know if I could do that stuff. And he said to me, come on, kid. You got to be able to come up with a characterization. You do characterization. You got to be able to come up with plot. You do plot. I said, but here's the kicker. It doesn't have to be funny. They're paying you the same rate and you're only doing half the work. And I thought about it for, <laughs> for a few minutes thinking, yeah. It doesn't have to be funny. So you're doing, you know, doing half the job, and they're paying you the same rate. <laughs> and I said to him, "Okay, I'll t- I'll take a shot." So uh, they assigned me actually to do a romance story. I remember the title. You know, I won't kiss that evil way. <laughs> um, Denny O'Neill was the editor. Oh, cool. And and then he said, "I'm going to give you the title. You come in. We'll, we'll talk about it." So I, I showed up. With three premises, you know, three possible premises for a story with that title. Then he was amazed because he said, well, yeah, most of the time guys don't show up with anything. We, we, we just hash it out ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, yeah, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> do that. <laughs> I said, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I did it wrong. He said, no, 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 this is, this is fine. And he looked over and, and we chose one of them and I wrote the story. And then, uh, he said to me, um, yeah, I'm not going to be doing the romance books anymore, but I'm going to be doing this book called Superman Family. Would you Would you like to do a Jimmy Olsen story? Nice. And I thought, hey, yeah. So I, I pitched the story to him, and um, he liked the pitch. And I uh, went home, I wrote it, and, and then I showed up the following week and um, had my script in hand for the deadline. And I show up, and I, I said, I'm here to see Danny O'Neill. I have a script for him. And the um, the receptionist got very nervous all of a sudden, 
and she called and she started whispering. And um, a few minutes later, Nelson Bridwell came out and he said to me, um, you're here to see Denny O'Neill? I said, yes. He said, well, Denny went freelance. I said, Denny went freelance? <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, he asked me to write a Jimmy Olsen story. He says, well, I'm, he says, well, I'm, I'm editing that comic book now. Okay. He says, and I already have my own writer. Wow. Said, That's kind of annoying. Yeah, okay. And I said, well, okay, but I was, DC commissioned me to do this story, and I, I expect to get paid for it. And uh, Nelson took me into his office and said, well, I don't know what to tell you because I didn't commission that story. Right. And I said, well, I really don't care. DC commissioned it. I expect to get paid. Yeah, I like that you defended yourself. That's awesome. Good for yeah. you. I, you know, I worked for advertising agencies and they ripped me off a couple of times. <laughs> I was, mm-hmm. and, uh, and Nelson said, all right, let, let me read the story. And Nelson started to read the story. And I'm, I'm full of, you know, all sorts of piss and vinegar. Oh, I'm going to get paid. I don't care what, what's <laughs> yeah, going on. Yeah, that's cool. Now, Nelson had some medical issues, which, uh, you know, it was a shame, but, uh, you know, and he made some strange sounds when he would read. Oh. And I'm listening to his sounds and I'm looking at his face and he's got this stern expression on his face and he's going through the story page by page and pulls out a pen, knocks some, and, and as, as he keeps reading it, I get more and more intimidated mm-hmm. and I'm sitting there thinking, all right, so I wasted a week writing this story. What am I going to do? And I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there, he finishes the story and he kind of rolls it up in his hand. And he looks at me and says, you stay right here. I got to go talk to Julie Schwartz. Yeah. And he, and he storms out of the room. And he comes back a few minutes later. And he says, all right, I talked to Julie. He's going to take care of my writer. You're now the writer on Jimmy Olsen. Yeah. And I said, what? <laughs> and he wow. Said, wow. And he says, yeah. And he said, he said so, uh, you know, I'd like you to work on the next thing. And he said, and also think about Lois Lane. And I thought, Wow. <laughs> So I ended up getting two assignments out of it, and, and I did. You worked. You worked there. For, you worked on those on that Superman family book for like at least a year or more, didn't you? I guess I I wasn't really paying attention at the time. You know how much time, and I also did something called the uh, Starfire. Yeah. And, oh, I I think I did Starfire for Denny. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might have done that before Jimmy Olsen mm. and Claw the Unconquered or Claw the Conquered. Or, Mm-hmm. Uh, the Unconquered. I worked on those things. Did you bring uh, Archie's sensibility to Jimmy Olsen? Is that something that happened? I, I don't think so. I think mm. you know. I, I hope I. Thing. I hope I brought a Jimmy Olsen sensibility. Sensibility to, to Jimmy Olsen. There you go. That's true. <laughs> Did yeah. you think it was funny that you went from one redhead with freckles to another? <laughs> to be honest, I never even made the connection. <laughs> well, because you read Jimmy Olsen as a kid, so you were I, more going to that, probably, huh? Yeah, that, that's that's what I was thinking of. I got gotcha. you. Uh, and Nelson, Nelson was really a continuity guy. He really loved continuity and and controlling, you know, continuity. And um, he would change the dialogue on Jimmy Olsen so he could add footnotes. Yeah. And he actually. Uh, taught me a, a very important thing when you're a professional writer. When you're a professional writer, you know, you work on your story and you work on it and you make it the most precious thing in the world to you until you turn it in. And then you don't ever look at it again. Because looking at the published work can only depress you. Because mm-hmm. you'll look at the published work and you'll either see a mistake you made or a mistake somebody else made 
or you'll see, wow, I was so much better then. I'm, I'm a bum now. It can only depress you looking at the published work. So you got to just focus on, on the story that you're working on. And then once you let it go, it's gone. Mm-hmm. So how much did you have to study up on those characters on Jimmy and, and Lois? Did you go back and reread from like early days or were you just with someone else catching mistakes if there were, were mistakes made? Well, I had Nelson and Nelson knew all the continuity. So if I would pitch something, he would t- say, no, no, you can't do that because blah, 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 blah. And I, I had a bunch of old you know, Superman comics and Lois Lane and, and Jimmy Olsen, mainly the Jimmy Olsen thing. So I see. So it's kind of up to the editor to maintain the continuity almost sometimes. Uh, yeah. The editor is the guardian of the character. Yeah. The, the writer. You know, this is why editors and writers don't belong on the same planet. Right. The editor is the guardian of the character, has to think of what's good for the character long term. The writer has to come up with a, a short term story. Yes. And focus what's best for that story. Mm-hmm. And sometimes a short-term story and a long-term character development don't, don't, don't mesh. Yeah. yeah. And that's when the editor has to say, no, you can't do this. I see. And were, um, was the, the Kirby aspect of Jimmy Olsen completely taboo at that point? Or was that something you could also incorporate that mythos into it? Oh, you could incorporate it. In, in fact, I did. I, I brought back the, the Newsboy Legion and, and did a dealt with some of the Kirby mythos because, you know, I, I'm a Kirby geek and I love mm-hmm. love that Jimmy Olsen stuff by Kirby. Mm-hmm. I do too. It's so different from what was coming before that. And I enjoyed that too. I mean, the Planet of the Capes and that kind of Jimmy Olsen is, is really fun. But then Kirby takes it in such a different direction. So I was just curious what you were trying to channel when you were doing it. I don't I honestly remember. I think I was, you know, just trying to... Just trying to do the best Jimmy Olsen stories I could, <laughs> and the best Lois Lane, and and then eventually the best Superboy stuff. I just, you know, I I'd read, you know, the the pre Kirby, the Kirby, the post Kirby, and then tried to do something that, you know, honored it all. Mm, that's cool. So, what made you leave? You went from DC to Marvel. Is that correct? <laughs> sort of, kind of. Mm-hmm. What happened? DC had a something called the. Uh, an, you know, implosion. The, the, the DC implosion. Ah, okay. That, that's, and uh, uh-huh. I've been doing a lot of work for DC, and I had a, a very big check coming. And I showed up on Friday to collect my check, and I needed that check because I was buying my first house oh, uh, cool. the, the following week. Uh-huh. And um, the checks normally showed up at ten o'clock in the morning. They weren't there, and it looked like there was they weren't coming down. They were going to cancel a lot of books. You know, we're hearing the implosion, that sort of thing. I found that about six o'clock that that night, the checks finally came down. I got my check. And I remember talking to Paul Levitz. He said, uh, we don't have any work for you now. And maybe in a couple of months, we'll have something for you. Wow. And I thought, well, <laughs> we'll talk in a couple of months. But I, I doubt I'll be, you know, if I haven't, haven't found work in a couple of months, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll probably be in a d- different business. <laughs> but... You know, yeah, because uh, now you had a house payment at that point. I, I had house payments at that. I remember, uh, you know, I didn't spend the whole day at, at, at DC. I went back to Archie, and I walked into the Archie office, and I said to Victor, hey, do you have any work? Because, I, you know, I was doing work for DC, but it's gone now. And he says, well, let me look around and see if I can find something. And then I called some other guys. It didn't occur to me to call Marvel, but I called some other people about doing some work here, doing some work there. 
And everybody said the same thing. Well, you know, let me look around. I'll, I'll see if I can find something. And then by about 12.30, 1 o'clock, everybody came back with assignments. Oh, cool. Um, and this is so, basically uh, 1978 when Jim Shooter is now editor-of-chief, right? Jim Shooter is now editor-in-chief. Yeah. I think I, I, think I had, um, had done a sample story for him before this. I had done a sample story, which was a vision story, which years later, Carl Potts used that to test young artists to see if they could do storytelling. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, I had scripted a couple of jobs over other people's plots and had uh, done like a two-issue Avengers story. Right. Because uh, you did, uh, what, Marvel 2-in-1 with The Thing, and then it, what, number 40 in 1978, and then you did two issues of Avengers, 179 and 180. And I noticed Black Panther was used in the Marvel 2-in-1 and then that Avengers comic, right? Is that what you're referring to now? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And, I, and I also did a What If Something with the Kree Scroll War. Yeah. And some odds and ends, but I, uh, after about three weeks after the implosion, I went to, <laughs> I went to talk to Shooter and I said, mm-hmm. uh, Hey Jim, I don't know if you noticed, but DC had an implosion that day <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. And he says, yeah, the day it happened, I had a line of guys outside my office. Says, <laughs> I was wondering why you didn't show up. And oh, I cool. thought, oh, didn't occur to me, which is the story of my life. I'll if we get to the end of my career, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you again what something that didn't occur to me. And I said, oh, oh, guys were lined up outside your office. He says, yeah. He says, I was surprised you didn't show up. Said, well, I had other freelance work. I, I just got around to it. I said, uh, I guess you gave out all the assignments. He says, no, I, I saved the book for you to do. So he uh, assigned me, I think, a tune one and Marvel team up at that stage. Oh, cool. So then you got along with Jim Shooter, it sounds like, when you joined Marvel. Oh, yeah. You know, I really liked Jim Shooter. I thought mm-hmm. he, you know, I thought he had a great vision for the industry. Mm-hmm. I thought he, you know, he's still one of the most creative guys I've ever run across. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, a genius, mm-hmm. a veritable genius as a plot doctor. Right. Guys would come in and tell a story, a meandering thing that had no beginning, no end, no middle. Mm-hmm. And Jim would listen to him for about 15, 20 minutes, and then he would pull out a gem, a diamond from that thing and said, here is the core of your story, mm. and explain to them how to construct the story. And I used to sit there and think, man, I fell asleep you know, 15 minutes ago, but Jim can always zero in on the core of a story. Wow. I think he's, I still think he's the best. Wow, that's great. That's great to hear that. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously everyone has their own opinion on on Jim Shooter. And Ron Wilson, I talked to him once, and he he really liked Jim Shooter. It's cool to hear your analysis because yours comes from like a a writer-editor standpoint. So that's pretty cool. I've never heard that impression of him before. Well, Jim Jim really understood story and story structure. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'm an anal retentive structurist, Mm -hmm. so I, I really appreciate it. Oh, that's great. So now, one of the things you did also when you came to Marvel was the five final issues of Machine Man, and Steve Ditko was doing art with that. So tell us about working with Steve Ditko. All right. Well, the, the editor of that was Denny O'Neill, who had come over to edit Marvel, and mm-hmm. and he said, hey, you want to you write Machine Man for me? I said, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I knew Ditko had done the last couple of issues with Marv Wolfman, and I said to uh, Denny, is a... Uh, is Ditko going to stay on the book? And then he said to me, well, he wants to read the first plot before he makes a decision. <laughs> and I thought, I thought two things. 
I thought, A, that's fair. He's Steve Ditko. Yeah. <laughs> you ought to be able to make that decision. And B, I thought there's no chance in hell he's going to stay on this book because uh-huh. I didn't think I was good enough to write plots for Steve Ditko. Okay. I turned in my plot and a couple of days later, I get a call and this voice on the phone says, what gives you the right to write about heroes? And I wow. said, uh, I said, excuse me, who is this? And he says, uh, this is Steve Ditko. And we, we ended up having about a two-hour conversation on the nature of heroes, you know, what makes a hero, what do we look for in a hero, all these different things. And the, the conversation went all over the place uh-huh. for about two hours. At the, at the end of the conversation, he said to me, well, this was fun. We should do it again sometime. And he hangs up. And I thought, is he going to stay on the book or not? And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I start working on the next plot. And I turn in the next plot. And then he says, oh, I'll have artwork for you in a couple of days. I said, yeah, who's doing the art- artwork? Steve Ditko. He said he had a great conversation with me. <laughs> so he's, he's staying on the book. Oh, that's great. Uh, and we, uh, we stayed on the book together. I had a tendency in those days and these days <laughs> to write a detailed plot. And Steve would say to me, you know, you could cut down. You don't have to put this, this amount of detail in it. You could, you could really cut down. I said, well, what would you really like to have, Steve? He says, I'd like to have a paragraph. <laughs> That's <laughs> it, huh? Okay. I said, I don't know if I could explain. <laughs> I don't even know if I'll be able to put a story together in my own head that I can get down into a paragraph. Um, and I, I tried to condense as much as I could. I think the best I ever got was like two and a half pages. But, you know, on the one hand, we had a ball on that thing. On the other hand, we did this this crazy style, like a parody of, of Marvel Comics dialogue with you know, every sentence had like about 50 adjectives in it. Uh-huh, right. And my, my natural writing style is very, very sparse. <laughs> so this was totally against everything I my natural writing style, but I'm I'm fighting to come up with all these adjectives and that sort of stuff to do kind of like a, a super version of Stanley kind of uh-huh. thing. Because the book, we knew the book had one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. So we were desperate to get any sort of content out there. Yeah, that we could. So were you a fan of Steve Ditko's Spider-Man? Oh, yeah. Yeah. People of my generation, I'm sure there was somebody who, who wasn't but I, I wouldn't talk to him anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Steve, <laughs> you know, Steve's work on Spider-Man, on, on Doctor Strange. Uh, yeah, I'm a writer. I should be able to express how much that stuff meant to me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm Steve did go geek, a Jack Kirby geek. You know, that stuff was just so great. It's, right. it's hard to quantify. Did you feel that the John Romita era was almost like an Archie comic where you had the two love interests and Flash Thompson, like Reggie, you know, Jim and I were talking about that in, earlier. Do you think that that was almost more like Archie or did it maintain the spirit of the Steve Ditko stuff? It maintained the spirit. It maintained uh-huh. a lot of the spirit. I had met John when he was doing Daredevil uh-huh. and I really liked his kind of thing. His Spider-Man was jarring to me because didn't look like Steve Ditko, uh-huh. but it, it, it eventually grew on me. I don't know if you guys have ever met John Romita or talked to him. Got to be one of the nicest guys in the universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and a total professional, just a terrific guy on so many, so many levels. <laughs> and a fabulous artist. Right. <laughs> Should mention that. Yes. Um, fabulous artist, yeah. 
Yeah. And, you know, the basic Archie, you know, format, a guy torn between two beautiful women, he can't make up his mind. That's, you know, that's the basis of most, most literature. Come yeah. On, a lot guys. of stories have that anyway. That's true. <laughs> Tell us about launching Dazzler number one in 1981. And uh, John Romita Jr. was the artist, but a, a lot of creator names are on that first issue of Dazzler. What, what was your role in Dazzler? I developed the backstory. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point I was brought in and there was a, a record company guy, yeah. uh, a movie guy, you know, uh, our licensing person. Mm-hmm. And the plan was that they were going to launch this character out, you know, do records, do movies, do comics. Right. It was going to be just a coordinated thing, kind of like what they used to do. In, I guess they still do it in Japan with comics and animation and everything else like that. You know, they. Uh, I, I remember they said to me, hey, we have Bo Derek and John Derek for the movie. Yeah. You know, Bo's going to star. John's going to direct. Right, they right, ju- right. They just have a movie before called Tarzan. Uh-huh. And I'm a big Ed Rice Burroughs fan. I was waiting anxiously for that Tarzan movie. Right. And I said, okay, and she's going to you know, be the dazzler. They showed me the artwork. Uh, John had done a publicity piece. And they said, yeah, her her power is she's both so beautiful that she makes people tell the truth. <laughs> Which and, sounds like uh, Wonder Woman's uh, rope or something. It right? like, sounds like Wonder Woman's rope. And yeah. I think something I, you know, must have must have flashed across my face because uh-huh. uh, the record guy said to me, what's the matter? You don't like that idea? Yeah. What's your idea? wise guy and i said well you know it's, it's just not a very visual power for comics or movies right i said well okay wise guy what's your idea and i said i don't know dazzler should have something to do with light yeah and <laughs> they, i always remember the, the movie guy that so you so you originated the light power with dazzler yeah yeah oh that's I, awesome I, at the time i said dazzler light and i looked at the movie guy and the licensing guy looked at each other like oh man what what a stroke of genius. And I'm genius. Thinking, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking you bring a hundred comic book guys into this room and you say a character's named Dazzler. What's her power related to? Yeah. At least 99 of them are going to say light. <laughs> so that's true. So, yeah. Yeah. I, so I thought, yeah, okay. So yeah, I'm a genius. Okay. I, I believe that one. So how did yeah. that coordinate with her first appearance in X-Men 130 in 1980 then. But her first appearance was in Chris Claremont's book. So how did that all, how well, did that work out? Well, what happened was we ended up doing the, the the backstory. I wrote a Bible for the character. Oh, cool. You know, I came up with the name Allison Blair. I love that name. Okay, keep yeah. going. Uh-huh. Allison, child of light, Blair, a loud sound. Oh, that's, <laughs> oh, that's so, so corny. Great. So corny. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh-huh. And, and no one ever caught me on that. We did the backstory. We did the Bible. We put together the first issue. It was supposed to be a, uh, a super special, a full color super special, a 40 page full color super special. Mm-hmm. However, before before it was going to go out to press, we we're just finishing it up. Before it goes out to press, Tarzan comes out, and um, Tarzan was not well received. I think that was kind of the end of John Derrick as a as a director a, as a director, and it you know hurt Bo's career for a while and that sort of thing. I see. So the movie people dropped out, and then uh-huh. eventually the record people, and then they took the Dazzler and they put it on a shelf. I see. Um, okay. And then, um, you know, time went by and then, you know, I don't know if the, uh, I'm trying to remember the time sequence when the, the X-Men came out, the Spider-Man came out, uh-huh. 
And I think we followed that by about six months or something like that. Or Yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. Because it's cover dated 81. Yeah. Yeah. They decided to let it be a direct only comic book. They said, hey, we have a 40 page story. We'll just cut it in half. Except this story was not constructed mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. So we had to add material in the front part, the back part. Mm -hmm. I always look at the first page of the second issue where Dazzler is sitting there and she's got like 200 thought balloons explaining everything that happened the first issue. Mm -hmm. Because the first issue was sold direct only. The second issue was going to be on the newsstands. And I thought, but what if those people picking up Dazzler 2 have not had a chance to read Dazzler 1? you got to explain it all to them. Exactly. And then we were off and running. And then did Claremont ask you some backstory about her before implementing her in the X-Men comic? Did, was there a conversation about that? I don't think so. I I think he just read the Bible. I think he read the Bible gonna... that you wrote. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think he just read the Bible because right. he and Marv both followed the Bible. I got you. That's pretty awesome. Well, thanks so much for your insight on that, Tom. Jim and I are having a great time. This concludes the first part of the Tom DeFalco interview. Please join us next week with me, Alex Grant, and my co-host, Jim Thompson, for part two. Cheers. Cheers.